1: Welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, James West, and joining me today is Patrick Phillips to talk about his powerful new book, Blood at the Root, A Racial Cleansing in America. At the turn of the 20th century, Forsyth County in Georgia was home to an African American community that included ministers and teachers, farmers and field hands, tradesmen, servants and children. However, following the rape and murder of a white girl in 1912, Bands of night raiders launched a campaign of arson and terror against Forsyth's black community, driving citizens out of the county and seizing their land and livestock. Expanding backwards and forwards from this flashpoint, Blood at the Root is a sweeping tale that spans the Cherokee removals of the 1830s, the hope and promise of reconstruction, and the crushing injustice of Forsyth's racial cleansing. With bold storytelling and lyrical prose, it breaks down a centuries-long silence over Patrick's hometown, and covers a history of racial terrorism that continues to shape America in the 21st century. Patrick is a past fellow of the National Endowment for the Arts and the Guggenheim Foundation, and has also received honours such as the Kate Tufts Discovery Award, a Pushcart Prize, and the Lyric Poetry Award from the Poetry Society of America. His work has appeared in outlets such as the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Poetry, Ploughshares, and The Nation, and he currently teaches at Drew University. Okay, uh, so I'm welcome, Patrick Phillips, to the show now. How are you doing, Patrick?
0: Doing great, James. Thanks for having me on.
1: That's no problem. Um, So if you could just let our listeners uh, know a little bit more about um, kind of your background, maybe previous books that you've written and uh, how you came to this project.
0: Um, So my background is I've actually been a poet for most of my adult life. I published three books of poems in the United States and uh, i'm an academic. I teach in an English department in uh, outside of New York at a university called Drew University. Uh, so for most of my life, I wrote poetry and I did my doctorate in seventeenth century British Lit, which means this book was a real departure in a lot of ways in um, that it's a book about you know the racial cleansing that occurred in my hometown in 1912 and uh, you know a hundred year shadow cast by those events and um, the aftermath of those events so it was a bit of a departure but it was also a story that I'd known since I was you know I'd known a kind of murky legendary version of the story since I was about seven years old so this was this was something I'd been thinking about really my whole life.
1: Um, so you mentioned that uh, Forsyth County is the, the county that we're going to be talking about quite a lot today Um, as your kind of hometown so were you were you born there or did you move there at an early age
0: Uh, we moved there at an early age Forsyth county is just outside of atlanta georgia and my parents were living in kind of suburban atlanta and in 1977 when i was seven years old they moved out of the city um, into north georgia Forsyth county is in the appalachian foothills so it's a it's just 30 miles from atlanta but it's kind of a different world you move up into the hills um, At the time in 77, it was a very rural place, you know, cow pastures and chicken houses and a real farm community still in those days. So we moved there when I was seven years old. I started second grade there and it was this, um, you know, it was a real change and we we were outsiders coming into this very um, kind of isolated community.
1: Um, And how did that idea of, of you being an outsider manifest itself? Was it just in terms of kind of the way that you, you spoke or was it kind of culturally or kind of maybe political ideology was what kind of yeah
0: of that that? you know I, it, I I noticed it right away a lot of the kids I went to school with um, were real farm kids and they um, in Forsyth County one of the first things that I noticed even as a young kid was there was this open and unabashed racism so the only word I ever heard my schoolmates or my teachers most of the adults they all used you know they all said the n-word um, that was the only term ever used for people of color for Forsyth and there were you know racist jokes all the time and a very open and unabashed um bigotry there and this was something new because my parents they're both from Birmingham Alabama which has its own very fraught racial history but my parents had both really rejected segregation as young people in the 1950s and had a split with their own parents over integration and so I hadn't been raised that way and I noticed this very early on and um you know, it struck me that we had entered this place where, uh, where the way that my parents talked to us and the way that we were raised was very different when it came to the, you know, to the subject of race.
1: Your parents still live in Forsyth?
0: They do not. They left, um, they retired and moved to the Georgia coast. And I've actually, I didn't think about it consciously, but I probably started working on this book. Um, I didn't know I was writing a book, but I started researching these events seriously about a decade ago. And, I didn't really think about it consciously as tied to my parents leaving Forsyth. But in some ways, when I look back, I think I was freed up to write about it um, by the fact that they don't live there anymore. So I I might've worried about them a little bit if I had brought this much attention to, you know, to our family, if they still live there.
1: Yeah. So you mentioned, I think it's in 1987. um, There's a a civil rights demonstration in in Forsyth County. And um, I believe your, your family is, is one of the few families that actually kind of, stands in solidarity with the with the protesters and it seems like they come under a bit of heat with with that so that you know obviously it's understandable that maybe you would try and in, in, on some level put off the kind of research until your parents have left
0: yeah you know at that point at that point we had been living in the county for 10 years and when we first moved there we we you know in 1977 in georgia if you drove 30 miles out of atlanta you were very likely to enter a place with Klansmen and bigots. I mean, Georgia had seen a governor. Uh, Lester Maddox had been the governor of the state of Georgia. He was an open racist. He had a restaurant in Atlanta that where he you know, proudly refused to serve black people. So, you know, we had understood that there were plenty of racists in Forsyth. But over the course of that next decade, from 77 to 87, I think my parents and and to some extent my siblings and I started to realize just how deeply this ran in Forsyth and that it was a, it was a pretty messed up place um, in, in terms of racism. So, yeah, in 1987, there was a march that was pr- organized to, to protest 75 years of segregation in the county and to celebrate the first. Uh, it was the second annual Martin Luther King holiday. And, yeah, you know, it seemed like a fairly modest proposal at the time that that a small group of people were going to march along a county road and simply speak out. Or the, you know celebrating the Martin Luther King holiday and speaking out against uh, fear and intimidation in the county. but that, you know, that, that line of marchers included my mother, my father, and my sister. and they were amongst a group who were really set upon by some of the you know, what were called counter protesters, but really a mob set upon them throwing rocks and bottles and bricks and they started arresting armed men in the crowd. So yeah, our, our sense of fear and our sense that there was a risk in speaking out was very palpable and real. So if we if we go back to, to 1912,
1: and this is the moment or the series of incidents in 1912, which your book kind of focuses around, um, can you give our listeners a bit of context as to what exactly Forsyth County looks like um, in 1912, in terms of kind of demographics, in terms of the occupation of people who might live there?
0: Sure. In 1912, Forsyth has about 12,000 residents. It's a very rural farming district, you know, north of Atlanta, but in, in a lot of ways, worlds apart from the city of Atlanta, which was a real boom town at that time. Forsyth, on the other hand, was kind of isolated. There was no rail line going there. It was a long way from the Chattahoochee River, which was the main source of transport. So it ends up being this kind of backwater. Um, A lot of farming there. There's a small small group of of more aristocratic, well-off, you know, doctors and lawyers and people in town. But for the most part, these are poor rural people um, and among the 12,000 residents, there are about 1,100 African-Americans who in 1912 are the descendants of a group of slaves who had been brought into the county when it was opened up in the 1830s. I mean, for, in some ways, talking about Forsyth in 1912, you inevitably go back because this is also the site of the Cherokee removals that happened in the 1830s. So Forsyth did not have any white or African-American residents really until um, Andrew Jackson ordered the Cherokee removals. And then, you know, white people flooded into the into the county and bringing with them a group of about 800 slaves, which by 1912 is about 1,100 people.
1: Um, and is that, uh, is that something that roughly compares to kind of uh, racial disparities or racial demographics in Georgia as a whole? Or, I mean, that sounds maybe like a smaller population of African-Americans than there
0: would be in the overall state. It is a smaller population. Um, you know, Georgia, the main industry in Georgia... Um, in the, in, throughout the 20th, or throughout the first half of the 20th century is cotton. And so Forsyth County, because of the geography, is right on the edge of the cotton belt. And it's possible to grow cotton there in the hills, but because of the mountainous terrain, it's not quite as amenable to cotton. And this means that um, in the antebellum south, Forsyth County had some slavery and slu- some cotton plantations, but not nearly on the scale of the parts of Georgia that lie further south. So it's really uh really a border territory right in between that cotton belt and and the mountains
1: um okay and then in 1912 um this this flashpoint uh, well there's, there's a series of flashpoints but the the main one is is uh this um kind of assault uh uh rape and then it would be an attempted murder and then eventually um actual murder of, of uh, a white uh 18 year old woman called called may crow um, so, if you could yes. talk us, uh, talk listeners through that incident, um, what kind of the allegations were, kind of how the, how the um, kind of assault initially plays out.
0: Yeah, you know what happened in Forsyth in the fall of 1912. In some ways, is very, fairly typical of the narrative that preceded a lot of lynchings during the Jim Crow era, and that they usually be Ida B. Wells was writing about this as early as the 1870s that lynchings usually began with some accusation of a white wo- of rape of a white woman by a black man. And exactly that accusation was made in the first week of September of 1912, when a young woman named Ellen Grice told her husband that she was, quote, awakened by a Negro man in her bed. Now, it, it's very difficult to know exactly what happened, but it, one of the possibilities is that she had a black lover and was discovered with him by her husband. Um, it's fairly telling that there was no prosecution ever made in that case. And eventually the men who were accused of raping Ellen Grice were simply let go. So, but whatever the truth of that is, when people heard that Ellen Grice had been raped by a black man, they kind of went crazy. And there was a, you know, the beating of a preacher uh, named Grant Smith on the County square, hundreds of men set upon Grant Smith because he had, said that all this trouble was caused by a, a sorry white woman is what he said about Ellen Grice. And as soon as whites heard that they set upon Grant Smith and they beat him and horsewhipped him And they were preparing to lynch him when eventually the County Sheriff and the mayor's deputy um, saved Grant Smith, took him into the courthouse. And then we had, you know, there were at that point, thousands of people outside the County courthouse pleading with the mayor for the body of Grant Smith, who they were going to burn. They wanted to, created this big bonfire. So the, the county really went into a crisis. And eventually the National Guard, the Georgia um, National Guard was dispatched by the governor to put down this riot. And everything had kind of calmed down after the troops arrived. And it looked like this was going to pass over. And it was at that point that another young white woman named May Crow was found beaten and bloody in the woods outside of town, really very close to the house where I grew up, you know, just a few miles from the place where I grew up. And this was a legend I had always been told, that May Crow had been beaten and raped by black men. And the, the story I was told on the school bus and on the playground as a kid was that this was the event that really started the racial cleansing of the county. This was the event that led to all the black people being run out. And, um, you know, that that was a legend I had always heard. And in some ways, the book was about me trying to get to the bottom of that and, it turns out there was in fact a May Crow and she really was. It's it's unclear who did that. I, the book lays out, you know, a lot of circumstantial evidence suggesting that the three young black men who died for that crime, it seems very unlikely that they committed it, but she was found in the woods. And in the wake of that, um, it, then the, the night riding really began full force and people set out and set fire to churches and they, used dynamite and shot into sharecroppers' cabins and created this wave of terror that would eventually drive out all 1,100 black residents of the county.
1: Uh, so you mentioned there the three black uh, well, young boys and, and then men who, who were accused and ultimately died um, for the, 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 the rape and, and murder. So you have Ernest Knox, who was about 16, That's right. Oscar Daniel, 18, and then Rob Edwards, who's a little bit older, 24. Um, That's right. So, how do these men uh, fare? Is it, are they kind of do they come to the same fate, or or do they do they all um, get to trial, or, or what exactly happens?
0: Well, so Rob Edwards was 24, and the day after Macrow was found, she she survived for two weeks and was in a coma at her parents' house. But as she, you know, and when you look, when I look at the census records, one of the things you notice is that Rob Edwards, Oscar Daniel, and Ernest Knox. In, it looks as if they're simply the only young black men living in the area. So it's a, it's an area mostly white, and they're among a small handful of black men. So it, it, there's strong suggestion that at this point, the sheriff and the mob are simply arresting any young black men they can find. Rob Edwards is taken to the county jail, um, and there's there are descriptions in the newspaper of you know hundreds of people trailing behind the sheriff as he takes Rob Edwards towards town. And they surrounded the county jail, and eventually Rob Edwards was dragged out of his cell. He was beaten to death with crowbars, dragged around the town square, you know, with a noose around his neck. And when his body was hoisted up, and they threw a rope over a, a telephone pole, and when his body was hoisted up into the air, thousands of people who had come into town to see it joined in and fired shotguns and pistols into his body, and so he's left hanging, you know, over the square all day. And the paper said. He was left there as a warning to local blacks that they that they had to leave Forsyth County for good. Um, The other two, and you know, Rob Edwards was 24. The other two suspects who were described in the papers, you know, with terms like the fiendish, low browed, gorilla type Negroes, and there are all these descriptions of them as monstrous. When I looked into the records, it turns out Ernest Knox was a 16 year old orphan. um, You know, very slight and by some accounts you know practically starving uh because they're so poor um ernest knox is 16 his cousin oscar daniel is 18 and the two of them were arrested and whisked out of the county to save them from the same lynch mob and they eventually go on trial and those trials lasted you know three hours four hours and both trials were completed in one day and the two of them were sentenced to hang
1: um, yeah there's there's quite this, this powerful moment in in your book where you where you talk about, um, because they are, like, they aren't fully grown men, um, the, how, you know, when uh, law enforcement are working out kind of the drop on the gallows or exactly how to construct the gallows, um, they do the measurements based on kind of uh,
0: measurements that would be applied to women. Yeah, that's right. The table of, there's a table of drops to figure out how to hang someone so that you, so that you snap the spine without decapitating the person or without um, having them hang there. Sometimes it could take up to if you get the if you get the drop wrong, it could take half an hour for someone to choke to death. So this is a really gruesome event. And yeah, they have to they have to use the table of drops that applies to young women because there's these guys are so slight and and small. Um, and yeah, this, this double hanging takes place on October twenty fifth, nineteen twelve, in a in a big open field. And you know, I've now walked the area and, and stood there looking up at these hillsides where people by the newspaper accounts, they spread out blankets, they brought picnic baskets, they brought their children and 5,000 people in a county of only 10, 11, 000, or I guess 12,000, but 5,000 people come out and ring these hillsides and spend the day celebrating this moment and, um, you know, cheering when Knox and Daniel go through the trap and are hung.
1: Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about uh, kind of local like county sheriffs or law enforcement in Forsyth County. Um, so you, a person who is is kind of an antagonist, I guess, in much of your text is uh, William Reed or Bill Reed, um, who's the county sheriff and would later become a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Um, what what is his role in terms of uh, particularly Edwards uh, being being lynched? Um, is he does he help to facilitate that, or is he trying to stop people? Um, what is his kind of position? Yeah. In
0: this? the two faces of the law in the county at the time were bill reed who was the county sheriff and a man named gay loomis who was the deputy and these two were rivals loomis had run against reed for sheriff the previous summer and lost and he would run against him again in 1914 so we have these two figures uh, of authority in the white community reed the sheriff and loomis the deputy who who wind up representing to me you know really two sides of the coin and that reed When when Rob Edwards is being threatened by a lynch mob, Reed leaves his post and goes home and sort of pretends that he was simply, you know, at home and had no idea that there was a mob outside the jail, which is which is really patently false. Everyone in town could see that there was a a, a severe threat of a lynching. And at that same time, when Reed is at home, um, leaving Edwards to his fate, Gay Loomis actually tries to bar the door of the jail draws his pistol, tries to fend off the lynch mob, and he's eventually overpowered. Um, But, you know, Reed would later change the story and claim that he was the one who had been there. And he, um, you know, tried to paint himself as a real hero to the Atlanta papers, when in fact he was the one who seems to have enabled the lynch mob to get at Rob Edwards. And this is very typical of the era. There was a lot of complicity of law enforcement. I think Dave Loomis is really the exception in the Jim Crow South at this point point, in that he actually fought and tried to preserve order. So, um, yeah, you know, among the many forces at work in all of this was a complete breakdown at no point of law enforcement. At no point did I find any warrant or arrest record or conviction of anyone in the entire white community of Forsyth for any of the crimes they committed against black people. So, you know, the the complicity of law enforcement of this seems pretty clear. Um,
1: So you have... Um, obviously, you have the the lynching of, of Edwards and then the kind of trial and the hanging of, of these two other uh, young boys um, or teenagers uh, what because that 's not the end of it so you 've already mentioned this this idea of kind of night riders. if you could say a little bit more about um what exactly that term means how how you apply it here
0: yeah, not only was it, was the lynching not the end of it in some ways it turned out to be the beginning of it and and the notion that the people had exhausted their wrath. Was something that a lot of the area papers printed up. Um, this was, there was a lot of wishful thinking throughout that, that the lynching of Rob Edwards would be the end of it and that people had now gotten their revenge for the attack on May Crow and the perceived attack on Ellen Grice. But, um, at, in the wake of Rob Edwards's lynching, uh, already there were black families streaming out of the county. The, the very early on, there were reports of families loading up their wagons and being seen on the road headed out of the county just going anywhere they could because word was going out that Forsyth would become a quote white man's county and it was unsafe to simply be inside the county line and then when what really throws gasoline on the fire is that about two weeks later May Crow dies of her injuries and her funeral is held at a little church near where she'd grown up and again you know this is all very close to to the house we lived in in the 70s and 80s so I'd been past this church many times, but in mid-September of 1912, when May Crow's funeral, she's buried at that church, and, and hundreds of people come out to her funeral, and I found a letter by a girl who was 14 at the time, who'd been a schoolmate of May's, and she said that on the night after May Crow's burial, quote, all hell broke loose in Forsyth County, and she described hearing distant gunfire, smelling smoke from from Sharecroppers' cabins and churches that were being set fire um people night riders used dynamite gunfire lynch uh, uh, arson, and essentially a ritual began where every night throughout the end of September through October and November, every night bands of white men would gather together and they would ride out to sort of root out the last of the black families who were still in the county and use you know pretty much any they posted notices and they delivered letters. And use any means they could to drive out the last of the families who were still there.
1: Um, so many of these families basically pack have to pack up and leave, um, taking what they can. But obviously, they can't take um, everything. And a lot of the land, uh, a lot of the property that's left there, um, might be in, in black possession. Uh, what happens? What happens
0: to that land? Well, you know, a lot of the people who were in the black community precisely didn't own anything. So there were plenty of families who simply walked away or loaded up a mule cart if they had it and left with whatever they could carry. But, you know, and one of the myths I had always been led to believe as a kid growing up, there was that the black community had all been poor, illiterate sharecroppers who owned nothing and who had a very tenuous grip on their life and for anyway. And so, you know, all of that I think was meant to minimize the theft that, that all of this really represented and, and to suggest that yes, it was violent and yes, they were displaced, but that was the end of it. Um, in reality, when I looked at the census records and the tax rolls and dug through the archives, I found that while there was um, a large portion of the of the county did not own property, there was a sizable minority who did. And so there were people like a man named Joseph Kellogg who owned 200 acres in the county. And he had accumulated that over you know 50 years. I could follow him through the records as he went from a slave to being emancipated and then in the 1860s, he's got $50 to his name. And slowly over the decades, you could watch Joseph Kellogg pouring the profits of, his, of one good harvest after another into acquiring more and better land. So people like Joseph Kellogg, there were several options. Some of them uh, sold at depressed prices, you know, under duress. They had no choice. It became a buyer's market. And there are plenty of accounts of whites. You know, giving very low ball offers, and you know it became this once in- a- lifetime opportunity for landless whites to acquire land by by making an offer to a black owner who had absolutely no choice. So some people sold early, others tried to weather the storm, and Joseph Kellogg was one of those. He actually went just across the county line to the south and spent about four years where he still owned his property in Forsyth, and he took out a mortgage on it and tried to borrow enough money against the land to weather the storm and that all of that suggests that he was still hoping to come back he still thought this might pass and he had a real he obviously had a vested interest in the county and had reason to hope he would be able to return and then the third group which is the most troubling are people who simply walked away they still own title they still had title to their land they still own property in the county and many of them never sold never got compensation but they simply disappear from the records and what you find looking through the deed books in the county courthouse is that slowly over you know the teens and the 20s and the 30s one property after another that was formerly owned by and still technically owned by a black owner sort of mysteriously reappears in other transactions so you have white owners white neighbors who sell a piece of land and when they go to the county courthouse they include their former black neighbor's property in that sale. And so it was really theft by, you know, bureaucratic rubber stamping. And eventually you, what, what you find is the county clerks have, have approved these sales and people who did not own land nonetheless sold it. And from that point on, you know, those those lots look to be, they had legal sanction and they look to be legally owned by whoever was the next buyer.
1: So, uh, what happens? Like, is it possible for you to trace uh, some of these families? Do you have any idea of where people might go when they when they're forced to flee Forsyth County?
0: I did trace a lot of them, and one of the one of the really amazing experiences of writing the book is that I've been in contact with a lot of the descendants. So I now know, and and have become friendly with a lot of the great grandchildren, great great grandchildren of people like Joseph Kellogg and Levi Greenlee. And, you know, I was I was really surprised to find that a lot of these families were living just across the county line. And some of them were living in places that I had driven past many times when I was a teenager, um, living in houses that I had seen out the window of a car over and over again. So I was really kind of haunted by the thought that if anyone had talked about any of this when I was there in the 80s, I could have still interviewed someone for whom this was living memory. You know, now at this point, Uh, more than a hundred years later, it's really no longer in living memory. And the closest I got was, you know, one generation, I found, you know, the niece of Oscar Daniel is 84 years old and living in a nearby town called Gainesville. And I interviewed her, but she was born 20 years after her uncle Oscar was hanged. So, um, so a lot of these families didn't go very far. Many of them were living in, in just across the County line to the East or the, or the South towards Atlanta, other people, um, like Jane Daniel, who was the sister of Oscar Daniel, and she barely escaped alive from all this. She was also arrested and ended up testifying against her brother Oscar in what seems to have been a plea deal that spared her life. Um, you know, I followed Jane all the way north and she went all the way to Detroit um, and became part of the Great Northern Migration. But, you know, and I had thought that this would be a, a kind of one happy ending in the story that Jane and her husband had escaped the Jim Crow South. But then, of course, when I would into their lives in Detroit, I found that in July of 1943, their neighborhood, Paradise Valley, suffered terrible rioting and, you know, 30, 30 odd people were beaten to death by roving bands of white men with wooden clubs. So, uh, you know, it also ended some of my naivete in thinking that this was particular to Georgia, that in reality, some of these families who got out, this wasn't the last time they were displaced. This wasn't the last time that they suffered violence at the hands of, you know, white terrorists.
1: Yeah, it's um it's I think it's a, a very good point that your your book makes um there's there's a, a quote from um, Chris uh, Matthew Crispino and Joseph Latimer book that I always really like which is um it's talking about the myth of southern exceptionalism and they they basically say you know we're not we're not writing this to, to absolve the south we're writing it to kind of implicate the nation um in that Yeah, sense, that's right. in that sense of you know seeing that seeing that kind of uh move north um you you very strongly make that connection. Um, between obviously detroit and then the kind of uh, racist violence that's that's happening in the south
0: um, did that yeah and i al- i also had to face yeah, i also had to fa- in interviewing the descendants i also had to face something i agree 100% of, uh, with all of that about implicating the rest of the nation and also i had to face the fact that in my mind as a white person th- this event in 1912 was exceptional and it looms very large in my imagination because I grew up there. But for many of the descendants who I interviewed, you know, this was one injustice among many that had occurred in their families, many of them long after 1912. And so this didn't it wasn't this exceptional event in their lives. Many of their families, you know, they escaped for sight, but they escaped into America and they had suffered similar displacement, similar you know, injustices in the 20s, 30s, 40s. Some of the families I interviewed were not doing very well in 2016. You know, they were living um, very difficult lives. So I, I also re- realized that, you know, there's a tendency to fetishize something like this since I come from the town, but it it, it, it wasn't an easy century for these families long after
1: 1912. Um, another thing that uh, certainly struck me about the book, and you've just mentioned in terms of the crossing of the county lines, was how rigidly this uh, kind of exclusion of african-americans was enforced um so you have a couple of uh stories so you have um you, t- you talk about the seeing georgia tour um mm-hmm. and you see people kind of moving from outside of forsyth county passing or, or attempting to pass through the county and you see that kind of sharp difference uh in terms of treatment um i was wondering if you could just say a little bit about um that that specifically the seeing georgia tour
0: yeah. I mean, one of the things that interested me most in the book was the was how in the world this was maintained, because th- this kind of a racial episode happened in a lot of places during this era. What makes Forsyth unique is that it was sustained and enforced over generations. So this, this idea that Forsyth was a white man's world had to be passed down, parent to child. And, you know, it, it was so successfully passed down that I had experienced it in my own life. Forsyth was still a dangerous place for a person of color to go in the seventies and eighties when we lived there. So I was, I was interested in the aftermath of 1912 and the means by which this was really codified and, and rigidly enforced, as you say. And the the first episode of that was 1915, just three years after the the waves of night riding and arson and after the purge. And seeing Georgia was this automobile tour. You know, in 1915, the car, the automobile is this, um, you know, new technology. And Georgia is among a lot of states in having a, what was called, called the good roads movement, where they were paving roads, they were building new highways. It was becoming possible to move around the region in an automobile in ways that people never had. Um, this was, of course, a luxury of the very wealthy. And seeing Georgia was a, was a driving tour. For very well-heeled, aristocratic, wealthy members of of the elite class in Georgia, and so in 1950, in the fall of 1915, they were going all around the state, and it was a lot of business developers and investors who were looking for opportunities. And they passed through the North Georgia mountains, and unknowingly crossed over the Forsyth County line in cars that were being driven by black chauffeurs. So at this point, you know, you can probably see where this is headed. You know, the minute that some of the white you know, farmers in Forsyth County saw black men driving these fancy cars in a long line that was headed through the county. They attacked them. Um, Some very well-heeled women from, from rich families in Atlanta had to pull revolvers and guard their, you know, protect their drivers with a pulled revolver. And there was an attempt to drag one driver out through the window of the car and there was a moment when, you know, school, school, the mayor of Cumming was a guy named Charlie Harris and he was desperately trying to get a railroad opened in Cumming. And, you know, he had gathered school children who were going to sing and host all of these rich investors. And just after the school children finished singing, a mob descended and the line of cars had to go speeding out of town because, you know, the whites of Forsyth County were enraged. At the very sight of black men inside the county line. So this this was a moment, and you know, in the wake of that, Charlie Harris eventually left town. And that moment was a signal, I think, to the more progressive people in the county that Forsyth was no place to try to make your fortune and that it had become, um, you know, it had become a really lawless place. And this is a moment when there was a brain drain and the people like Charlie Harris and Gay Loomis, who had opposed all of this, start leaving. And and the county is really left in the hands of men like Bill Reed and people who supported the notion of it as a white man's county. So that 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 moment in 1915, I see as a real turning point when the rest of Georgia and the rest of the state started to understand what had gone on there and that this wasn't temporary, that this was going to be enforced and that it was going to last.
1: Um, and that's certainly something that maintains and continues to be enforced into kind of the, the 50s and 60s and the development of the, the civil rights movement in the South. Um, so, how is uh, Forsyth County uh, treated, or, or how is it ignored in terms of the Southern Civil Rights Movement?
0: So, in you know, people in the Civil Rights Movement, like Hosea Williams, was the man who he was a Hosea Williams. People may know that name as a was a real right hand man for Martin Luther King, and had he led the Selma March with John Lewis in 1965, he was a, a really hardened veteran of the worst civil rights struggles. And Hosea Williams, when he came to Forsyth in 1987, said, we've got a a South Africa right in the backyard of Atlanta. And John Lewis said, you know, there are these pockets that the civil rights movement passed over, and Forsyth County is one of those places. So both of them recognized that Forsyth was, you know, a bastion of white supremacy and a bastion of old-fashioned bigotry and segregation that that had been hiding in plain sight and that the movement simply missed. Um, in the 1950s and 60s. And, you know, in Forsyth County, there was no need for signs about colored and white drinking fountains because there were no people of color in the county. There were no clashes in the 50s and 60s. There were no lunch counter sit-ins because the mobs in 1912 had succeeded and their children and grandchildren had successfully defended this idea for generations by that point. And there really was no one with whom you know, white segregationists in Forsyth would have clashed. So it was this really surreal thing to realize that, you know, Atlanta and Martin Luther King's church, you know, um, Ebenezer Baptist is a real epicenter of the civil rights movement. It's 30 miles south of Coming, And yet, you know, right there in the foothills was this place that seemed completely untouched by integration and really untouched by federal civil rights law, you know, in terms of housing and employment discrimination, equal access to schools, none of that seemed to be enforced in Forsyth and it was, it was really, um, it was really left to its own devices for all that time.
1: Um, yeah, and you've, you've got these kind of, uh, in retrospect, these kind of extraordinary examples of, so black truck drivers going from Atlanta or Chattanooga would kind of maybe risk speeding through and hope they didn't get a spare, uh, like a flat tire or just kind of drive hours out of their way just to not go through Forsyth County at all. Um, and this seems to be, again, like a story that's not really understood or told on, on a national level. Um, are there particular reasons for that outside of just um, kind of the things that you've already mentioned in terms of the way in which this uh, kind of entrenchment of racial attitudes is passed down generationally?
0: Well, it was, it was very interesting to me in a real education to talk to, in talking to some of the descendants of the Forsyth refugees, I also had more frank and honest conversations with African-Americans than I've often had. And, you know, one one caveat is this is a story that's not very well known in white America. But very, very few of the people of color I talked to about this were surprised. There, many of them knew of other places that they had been warned as children to never go. And so the notion that there are territories and county lines and places that you should be careful of and that, that if you cross them, you're taking a, a physical risk. Um, you know, this is something that most of the black people I talked with from the Atlanta area were familiar with, and it's something that white people are a bit oblivious of. Um, so, you know, and, and why that is, I, I think it comes down to a kind of progress narrative. I mean, this is my theory anyway. I was raised by two people from Birmingham who had participated in civil rights demonstrations in the fifties and sixties who were very proud of having stood up against segregation and who were very proud of the gains that were made during the movement. And so they communicated to me, and these are people coming from the left and progressive, they communicated to me this idea that every day America gets a little more just every day we get a little bit closer to racial equality. And, you know, writing the book really challenged that narrative to me because that, that sort of linear, Progression, you know, ignores the fact that that gains made by one generation can be given back in the next. That sometimes the wheels of progress that have been moving forward, you know, are slammed into reverse, and and we and things go backwards. And also that it's not uniform; that there can be these gains happening in one part of the country, and then in others, it is completely unchanged. And that that was Forsyth County for most of the 20th century. They did not participate in the America that we think of as, you know, being the America created by the Voting Rights Act, created by Brown versus the Board of Education. Forsyth County didn't participate in any of that, and that was not the world that they were living in, certainly into the late 1980s.
1: Towards um, towards the end of the book, you you give a kind of example of the way in which these kind of attitudes haven't changed, Um, and it's the attempted murder of um, Miguel Marcelli. Um, So, first of all, um, I'd just be interested to hear how much you were kind of aware of uh, of this at the time that it was happening just a, a relatively short time after you had moved your family had moved to Forsyth?
0: I think I wouldn't have been aware of it at all except for the fact that it was very close to our house so this was for listeners this was the shooting of a black firefighter named Miguel Marcelli in 1980 um, who came to a company picnic with his girlfriend she was from Chicago he had immigrated from the Virgin Islands and so um, neither of them, these were two young black people who were living in Atlanta, and neither of them were aware of Forsyth's reputation or aware of the risk they took when they came to this party, you know, at, up on a lake at a beautiful, you know, lakeside park. Um, and eventually they, they didn't know that they had come right to the epicenter of Forsyth's violence. They were a few miles from where May Crow had been found in 1912. And one of her descendants ends up leading a group of men who shoot Miguel Marcelli, And he took a bullet in the neck and very nearly died from it. He ended up surviving. Um, But this was in 1980. And I I think I wouldn't have been as aware of it, except that this happened very close to our house. And at the time, my mother was working as a reporter for a paper in Gainesville, Georgia, which was in a neighboring county. And so my mother's editor asked her, when this happened, asked her to go down and ask some of the neighbors what, what they'd seen and what they'd heard. And when my mom went down and started knocking on doors, she, you know, had the door slammed in her face frequently. And it was clear a lot of people weren't gonna didn't want to talk about this and were irate at the very idea of someone coming and asking questions about it. So that, that led my parents to realize something unusual had happened. And um over the course of the next few months it came out, you know, exactly how what had happened and that this was yet another iteration, you know, seventy years after May Crow and 70 years after the original night riding, where you know, in the eyes of a white, of some whites in Forsyth, Miguel Marcelli's crime was simply being black and inside the, that county line. So this this was a moment that, uh, again, you know, it didn't really raise national attention, but it certainly um, should have reminded a lot of people that the, that the racial cleansing wasn't a historical fact from the past, that this thing was still going on, that it was ongoing, um and and then the the events in 1987 and the march made that really clear to everyone around the world
1: um yeah and let's just uh kind of finish by by talking about the the, coming back to the 1987 march the brotherhood march um so if you could say just a little bit more about um how that march uh kind of went down and that's the kind of as you say a moment where national attention maybe becomes a little bit more focused on Forsyth
0: yeah, in 1987, a guy named Chuck Blackburn, who was a white man who had moved into Forsyth from San Francisco, um, and another man named Dean Carter, who lived nearby. These two white men, uh, you know, had black friends who lived in Atlanta, and they, when they invited them to come and visit them up on the lake, they discovered that African Americans in Atlanta would not come to Forsyth for any reason. And this was when their eyes were opened to the whole idea of a racial ban in Forsyth County and the two of them set out to protest this publicly and they put an ad in the paper calling for local people of conscience uh, to speak out against this ongoing intimidation. They reached out to local churches and eventually they joined forces with Hosea Williams and the King Center. And in the course of about a week, this this kind of started to get attention and whites in got very angry at the idea of a protest and at the idea of black marchers from the King Center coming to Forsyth County. And Dean Carter and Chuck Blackburn got death threats. There were, you know, a lot of the area churches refused to participate. Some of them had said they were going to participate, but then under pressure, they refused to participate. So eventually on January 17th, 1987, a very small, in 75, a line of 75 marchers most of them from the King Center, but a small handful from in the county lined up on a county road. And the plan was to walk into town and there would be some speeches celebrating brotherhood and celebrating the King holiday. And my mother, my father, and my sister were in that line of of marchers. And eventually they were surrounded by a mob on both sides of the road who threw rocks and bottles and bricks. They were chanting, you know, racist chants. If, if, if you look up Forsyth County in 1987 on YouTube, you can see video of this, of people um, screaming and children on their parents' shoulders, you know, repeating these racist chants. And when the law, local law enforcement started arresting armed men in the crowd, they asked Hosea to abandon the march. And eventually it was abandoned because they were worried that somebody would get shot. Um, and so this the news footage from that moment went all around the country and really eventually around the world. And people were astonished to realize that here it was, 1987, and these were scenes that looked like Selma, um, that looked like any of the civil rights marches from the worst days, you know, of the integration struggle.
1: Um, So a little bit earlier, you mentioned that you'd uh, interviewed and become fairly close with a lot of the African-American descendants of people who'd been forced to flee. Um, I was was interested if you had uh, done interviews with white residents of Forsyth County or uh, descendants of, of people like Bill Reed?
0: You know, I did. I did talk with a lot of, I, I did not talk with Bill Reed's descendants. I did talk with a lot of old time residents of the county um, and a lot of old time residents of Oscarville, which was the little community where May Crow uh, had lived. And yeah, you know, I, I. and also since the book has come out, I've got. I've had a lot of contact with people from inside the county. And, you know, it's been a mixed, mixed response. There are people, even when I was working on the book, there were people who were grateful and relieved to have someone trying to dig into the story. And then not surprisingly, there were people who said, you know, why are you dredging up the past? This is all over. This is done with. Why are you, you know, why are you poking the hornet's nest in some ways? And people who said, if you, if you leave it alone, that's the only way we'll get past this. So there's a, there's a prevailing notion among some of the old timers that, that the best way to get through this is to simply not talk about it you know, and and there have been people saying that from the beginning. So, you know, the reactions were mixed. But the, the other thing was that when I started talking to people in the white community, I was surprised to find how many like-minded people there were, but who had also been afraid to speak out. So one of the effects of all of this intimidation and this, you know, code of, of a racial ban was that even people who did not support it kept their peace and were and were quiet about it and were separated. So I didn't know any other people who thought like we did about all of this in the 80s. But it turns out they, they were there. I think there were people like that there. Um, you know, one, one of the African-American uh, protesters who came to Persaith in 87 was a guy named Falker Ward. And he, he said at one point in this community for too long, he said, silence has been interpreted as consent and i think that that really he really put his finger on it that there were people who did not agree but they kept their they kept their peace about it and and that silence was one of the things that enabled this to last for so long
1: um that seems like a a good point to to end our discussion today um i just had one uh last last question which is um where can can readers find more uh, listeners find more about your work um or if you got projects that you're working on at the moment that you would maybe like to to share or to preview Sure. So
0: I have a website, PatrickPhillipsBooks.com. That's Phillips with two L's. PatrickPhillipsBooks.com has, and that also has historical photographs. The book contains a lot of photographs that I um, was really fascinated with and and worked very hard to find. So you can see photographs of a lot of the people involved in the story at that website as well.
1: That's great. Uh, Thanks very much for joining me today, Patrick.
0: Hey, James, thank you. It's been a pleasure.